baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. Plenty of kids right about now are likely lamenting, prepping for college testing and college applications. Now, parents, if you think forms that you had to fill out for a mortgage were tough and cumbersome, wait till you get a gander at some of the application processes for some colleges your kids might be thinking of applying for. It can be a very tall order, a daunting one, sometimes downright discouraging. But we have an expert on college admissions to help us slog through the ins and outs, the do's and don'ts of getting into an institution of higher education. My guest is Vice President for Enrollment Management at Santa Clara University, Mike Sexton. In a career of nearly four decades, Mike Sexton has been in the classroom himself as a teacher, has managed admissions applications for several universities around the nation. His knowledge of college admissions has taken him to nearly all the states in the union and around a good part of the globe. He has served on the faculty of the National Association for College Admission Counseling, as well as the College Board's College Planning Advisory Board. He was on the faculty of the College Board International School Counselors Institute and represented the State Department's Overseas Travelers Project Guidance Committee at American Embassies and International Schools. So in short, Mike Sexton knows his admissions stuff. Mike Sexton, thank you very much for joining us on In-Depth. My pleasure. Let's start with uh, myths versus facts. And was I correct in saying that there might be a little extra pressure for juniors, that this is a really important year? Well, over my time doing this work, students have started this earlier and earlier. And that's with good cause. I mean, if they're aspiring to attend some of the institutions where there's literally just a greater number of applicants than there are possible spaces, they have to get their ducks in a row. And I think uh, starting early is usually good in most things. So what do you mean by early? Oh, I would say uh, we, for example, we get visitors all summer. Uh, Most of them are juniors uh, that have finished their junior year. They've already talked with their counselors. They have maybe a long list, and they're starting to do these campus visits to get a sense of how big big is, how small small is. And most of them, I think, a wise idea is to start locally and say, I can visit small, medium, and large institutions right here in the Bay Area, maybe before I'm going to invest in a plane ticket to fly back to Washington, D.C., to Miami, whatever. What are some of the things that should go into that form of thinking? Uh, Whether do I, and for for parents too, do I, what might be the benefit of a small college, state versus a private institution, out of the area versus local? I mean, if you're looking at the personality of your child and also um, their scholastic abilities or maybe their interests, how do you put all that together with the money issue and and know where to begin just visiting? Well, a lot of it, I think, begins with whether the parents have been through this process before. And even if they had, it's changed a lot. Um, many of the parents went to college when we used to graduate about 2.2 million students uh, from U.S. high schools, and half of them went to college. Now we graduate 3.3 million 
high school students, and two-thirds of them go to college. So it's a very different environment, uh, which is one of the reasons why selectivity has changed so much. The students, I think, rather than rushing into what college am I going to go to, really have to be a little more self-reflective. They need to know what they like about their current high school environment. What do they don't want to give up? Small classes, access to faculty, those kinds of things. Do they need to know what they want to major in this early in the game? I mean, with the cost, is it still, and choosing a school, is it still possible to go in undeclared? Well, I think the students... um, 11th grade students in California have kind of a a baseline to make sure that they go through the UC eligible, the A through G requirements. I think in your junior year, you're about keeping options open. The more options are kept open by taking challenging coursework, taking that fourth year of math, things that might matter if all of a sudden you decide you do want to consider business or engineering. And when we're evaluating candidates, our job is to say, what has this student done with what's available to him or her? And within the listenership here, we have students in high schools that have an amazingly rich curriculum, others not so much. So that's the challenge for any admission office to say, what has the student done and how have they challenged themselves? Because basically, we're working on the behalf of our faculty to find the students that they want to teach. They want walking into their classrooms, their studios, their laboratories, And so this is actually a pretty evidence-based process. We're looking for evidence that the student has challenged themselves. I I don't think they should feel any pressure in their junior year to say, I'm going to major in bioengineering. How do you know that? You haven't even taken your calc sequence, your physics, et cetera, or necessarily know what it is. It might be an idea. That's great. What do I have to do to keep the options open to include that? And when I'm looking at colleges, make sure they have that. But most colleges and universities, the student doesn't actually declare a specific major till their sophomore year. So these juniors have many more courses to go. They may fall in love with psychology when they take that AP psych course in their senior year. And then all of a sudden they've taken a left turn from what they wrote down in their junior year. That sounds familiar, probably from what I did way, way back as well. But the pressure to get into a school, the competition to get in. You, you mentioned uh, admissions officers looking for what they look for uh, based on what their faculty, the people they want to teach. At some of the more competitive schools, even here in California, let's say in the UC system or private universities, um, does one get a leg up if it's an impacted uh, department, but the incoming freshman who's applying knows what they want to do? Does that give them a leg up competitively from an undeclared in a, in a tight race for a spot? Well, at different institutions, they have to actually apply to the School of Business or the School of Engineering. And again, they'll look for evidence to be ready to succeed in an, an accredited engineering program. So we're looking at the, the math and the, the math SAT or ACT and looking at their math sequence much more than we would for somebody who's going to go into arts and sciences. So I don't know that it gives them a leg up other than the fact that they're presenting evidence that they're going to be successful. In the admission process, we basically have two questions. The first one is, can we predict academic success for the student? And that's going to be based upon that three to three and a half years worth of high school work that we see. And for most selective colleges, which get all the press about why people can't get in, 
uh, probably 90% of their applicant pool could come in and succeed. That's not an issue. Easy question. Second question is more important. How do you go from this admissible stack to the admitted stack? You know, at, at Stanford, they have, you know, 45,000 applications. Probably 44,000 of them could come and do the work, but they're only going to admit 4.7%. We admitted 48%, but we're both choosing from among qualified candidates. So that's where the rest of the story gets to come in. Uh, so a student can do, this is one of these processes where a student can do everything right and still not be guaranteed of getting what they want because of supply and demand. Let's talk more about that supply and demand. What, what will help a student get to the first, second, or third college of choice? Is it the recommendation letters? Is it the, the essays? Is it extracurricular? Are there What, what are the, the legal um, parameters by which a school can choose for diversity, for gender, for ethnicity, all, all kinds of diver, ge geographic diversity? Sure. I'm, I'm glad you said first, second, or third choice, because I think one of the problems is, even though they start the process early, they should not fall in love too early. Uh, there's a lot of exploration to be done, both internally with the help of their school counselor to see the viability of their record and how they've done in applications to that university, and then being ready for things to change. So I mentioned the first thing is the, the academic part. We have to believe somebody can be academically successful, and that's the majority of the pool. Our job, and all of my counterparts would say, our job is to enroll a class of individuals. If I'm doing a presentation to students and I say, how many of you want to go to college with really interesting people? All of them raise their hands. And I usually say, well, you have to be one of them. So there is the rest of the story that allows us to say, how is this student going to be a member of our community? We're not looking for the average Santa Clara student enroll 1,300 of them. If they were all the same, that would be incredibly boring, both to them to our faculty, certainly to us reading their applications. So the diversities you refer to are myriad. It's geographic, ethnic, experiential, academic, so that the people we're admitting as we're training admission staff say, would this be an interesting roommate? Would you want to be in a group project with this person? How would you like to have this person as a lab partner? What do they bring to the table that's different and exciting? For some specifics, what should students be doing to write that part of the story for themselves? Well, the part that uh, we're looking at, again, is from ninth grade through the beginning of 12th grade. And in addition to academic success, the things that we're looking for that we think would make them a good community member is some evidence, again, that key word, of their commitment, of their passion. We would much rather, and it's pretty clear that in reading applications, one or two things they've really spent time on, developing a skill, um, a talent, uh, and have some in-depth reflection on that, rather than somebody who joined 10 clubs to get 10 pictures in the yearbook. We want this depth, not breadth, of involvement. And when I say that, it's not just high school involvement. It might be in their community, it might be in their church, their synagogue, their volunteer work, um, whatever. We want to see how they balance taking a good curriculum, doing well in that with the realities of the rest of their life, because that's what college is going to be like. So it tells us about time management, tells us about commitment, and it could be their sport, could be their theater. We realize if you're involved in one or two things heavily, you can't be in five other things. 
because we want you to have that balance. Uh, we think there's a lot too much, a lot of pressure that's built up around this process that they have to take every AP or every IB course. That's not appropriate if the teacher didn't say you're ready to be successful in this course or have to do this thing because it'll look on my look good on my application. In fact, there's kind of a pushback on that. There's a group called Turning the Tide, uh, which is trying to lend some um, a little more compassion to the application process, quite frankly, rather than having be getting the list, getting as many things as I can. We want depth and quality rather than shallow and quantity. And do you think that's across the board in most universities? Oh, I think uh, I think the pendulum is swinging back a little bit. I think these would be the places that actually have the time and staff to read applications. Now, of course, we know there's some institutions where it is about the numbers. And if you have this GPA and this SAT, you know, there's a little grid and you're in or you're out. That's a whole different set of places. But most of the questions have to do with I had that SAT and that GPA and I didn't get in. Why? And the why is because you don't know the other 16,000 applications that we read. SAT scores or any test scores, how heavily do they weigh against, say, a good GPA uh, and a great, well-rounded set of activities and community involvement, but just not a good test taker? Is SAT the end-all, be-all? No, no. And uh, I'll go back to that first point, the first question, predicting academic success. The best predictor of how somebody's going to do at a university is that three and a half years worth of work in their high school. Performance over time predicts performance. An SAT is three hours on a Saturday morning. If our faculty evaluated with three-hour multiple choice tests on Saturday mornings, we'd probably counted a lot more. So again, the core academics in, in the high school is the starting point. Now, an SAT or an ACT um, is a common yardstick. It's a, an, a, an assessment for somebody from San Francisco and somebody from Shanghai and somebody from New York City. They've t- taken the same test. But if you look at the way colleges report tests now, we give you the middle 50%. So you can kind of see if you're in the ballpark. But that means a quarter of the students scored higher than that. They're really good at those kinds of tests, good for them. But a quarter of the students scored lower than that lowest number. Why did we admit them? Well, we know where they went to school, what was offered, what they chose to take, how they did, and what the trend line was from ninth grade to 12th grade. Much more important information. In fact, we realize standardized tests are not everybody's best friend. There are now over 800 institutions that have some version of test optional admissions. There's a website called fairtest.org F-A-I-R-T-E-S-T dot org, which will give you a list of them and what their criteria are. And in the last year, there have been 30 institutions that have now made testing optional. If you're just joining us, we're talking about getting into college, the admissions process, what admissions uh, folks look for in different universities. And my guest is certainly an expert in that. He is vice president for enrollment management at Santa Clara University, Mike Sexton. I'm Jane McMillan. How do most universities these days cull through applications? Is it an algorithm that scans for certain words? I mean, we've learned that the hard way for those of us who have ever applied for a job and gotten an automated rejection. Uh, Is somebody actually reading them? Should they be prepped for algorithms if there is a scan process? Well, 
you know, with the 4,000 institutions, I can't certainly speak for all of them. I've worked at four of them, but um, I can pretty much assure you that things are going to be read. Now, some colleges or universities, usually larger public universities, certainly some that aren't as selective, might come up with a very slick multiple regression formula and you plug in an SAT and a GPA and we give you an index for your school and your curriculum and the computer could tell us the most likely people to be successful. And the computer would be right most of the time. And we would miss some wonderful people if we did that. So this is a labor-intensive process. UCLA had 100,000 applications. They hired over 100 part-time readers to actually put eyes on this to verify things, to kind of highlight the good, the bad, and the ugly for the second reader. So there's another set of eyes. This is rarely a one-and-done kind of a process. Um, when we're training staff, we have some kind of rubric of what we're looking at in terms of curriculum and the essay and the recommendations. These are all part of, part of the story. But they're going to get that first academic snapshot, which kind of puts them in a category of I'm looking for this to be confirmed as a, a solid admit or maybe even a scholarship candidate, or this really seems lacking. There must be an amazing story for me to keep this one in consideration, depending on the selectivity of the institution is. I'm presuming that most applications are online these days. Uh, just about all of them. And it can be kind of daunting. Uh, is it worth the money? I mean, folks are trying to make a living at doing your college application for you or guiding you or doing the proper put together in case there's an algorithm scan. Is that worth it? Well, I think it depends a lot on the individual student, depends on the student uh, high school and what kind of college counseling they get. depends on the parents who have some knowledge about their student and say, this is one of the ways that he or she can get things done. I think the wealth of information that colleges provide, that websites provide, the college board, uh, really cover all the bases if you're a student that can follow directions. If there's two words anybody remembers about what I said is follow directions. We will tell you exactly what we want, how we want it, when we want it. And that would take care of a multitude of errors that happen. Uh, but some people are procrastinators. Some people need that nudge. And whether there's a healthy relationship with a parent who can give that nudge, whether they go to a school that has some wonderful counselors that make them aware of deadlines, that's fine. For somebody else, hiring an outside person uh, is certainly not essential. It's not anything that's going to guarantee anybody, and the best ones will tell you that. Uh, but they may provide that nudging. That would be helpful. How about hiring someone to help plow through the possible uh, scholarships, grants, financial aid available, or is that also particular, best to go be particular to the school in w at which you're applying? Well, again, there's a lot, a lot better consumer information than there used to be. All of the institutions are required by the federal government to have a net price calculator on their website. Uh, the government provides estimators for the FAFSA for any federal aid. Um, so, again, it's out there. Whether somebody helps aggregate that for you might be fine. Uh, your high school guidance counselor is not going to be your financial advisor about filling this out. Just as admissions is a bunch of forms and a bunch of deadlines, financial aid is a bunch of forms and a bunch of deadlines. So, depending how good you are with that world, you may need some help or 
you may go through the process and be the kind of person that knows how they work with deadlines. But again, we'll tell you exactly what to do, when to do it. Can't have a conversation about higher education without talking about the expense. Um, and it's all over the news. It's in the political uh, presidential campaign right now about student debt, how to deal with it. Um, what should a student and family look at before choosing a university or college uh, based on the, the financial uh, ramifications? Is it good to say, well, that that university is going to be too expensive, so from the get-go, I'm not going to apply? Or uh, is it beneficial to uh, conversely say, all right, odds are I'm going to major in, I don't know, humanities, so maybe I should choose a school that isn't MIT. I would always encourage people to think about that at the same time, because getting in is half the battle, paying for it is the rest. And this is an investment. You have to look at this as an investment. And it's probably going to involve uh, some of your dollars and some of the university's dollars and some of my tax dollars helping to give you loans and work study and so on. What people need to realize is they need to find out the net cost. You're right, the sticker price is daunting. But if you're at an institution where 75 or 80 percent of the students get some financial aid, it's wildly different from you and the person across the street and the person sits next to you in class. And that you really don't know until you apply. But again, you could use the, there's a FAFSA estimator at the .gov site where you can kind of plug in number of students in the family, age of the parents, some income. It'll ballpark you. And I can tell you, you'll probably be shocked at what they expect you to be able to contribute. But it'll give you an idea because that expectation is probably going to be the same at all the schools you're applying to. Now, the student has a part in this, too. Hopefully, they've done well. They've developed some aptitudes, skills, whatever, that are attractive to an institution. And so there are scholarships, majority of them academic, but also athletic and arts and ROTC and debate or whatever else that institution has. They may be able to earn something towards this. But this partnership of paying for a college has to be seen as primarily they're going to look at the family resources. They're going to look at the number of students in the family, number of kids in college at the same time. And then it's going to be some government money perhaps. And we're very fortunate in California that we have Cal grants available to some people, federal government, Pell grants, work study, and loans. So what you need to look at is that composite because the press is having kind of a field day with this. And a trillion dollars is a pretty daunting number when you add it all up. But sadly, the focus is usually about some spectacular article about some poor student who has $120,000 in debt. One half of 1% of college graduates have $100,000 in debt. One half of 1%. My advice, don't be that person. I mean, I'm amazed that they are willing to go on camera and say, I really made some poor decisions. Take care of me now. And that's the reality is college remains a very strong investment, great return on your investment. I think as a rule of thumb, if somebody thinks that their loan debt when they graduate is less than what their first year salary is going to be, they're fine. You know, the average is $28,000, $30,000 in debt. Some people will finance a car like that and it loses its value every year. A college education is going to pay dividends the rest of your life. Uh, it is a good investment, and those that question it 
really aren't saying as opposed to what. To not going, that's not a good choice. If somebody just wants to get a job out of high school, you can do that. Unemployment in California is fairly low, and you'll probably be doing that job for a long time. Um, but those that want to invest the time to go and get a degree, and this could even be an associate's degree at a two-year college, all of the years of college you accumulate are all going to pay dividends in terms of return. Well, you bring up a good point about uh, junior college. Uh, who is the student for, for which that would be a better option than trying to navigate the application or financial process of a university as a freshman? Well, California is very fortunate. We have 112 community colleges, more than any place in the country. In fact, more states combined. Uh, it's a very viable way to begin your education. Now, there's different reasons for that. Some of it's financial. You can take the first two years of your education. They map right into the Cal State and the UC system at a very low cost. There may be reasons why you want to stay near home for family reasons, whatever. That's fine. Transfer into the UCs and the Cal State it, it was high, and then it was restricted. Now it's opening up a little bit. The private sector, we all look for transfers. We enroll 140. Uh, USC enrolls over 1,000 transfers. And most of them are California two-year college people because there's so many of them. Um, so I think that's a very viable way. There's others for whom they know their academic record is not going to answer that first question of readiness. So the community college is a chance to strengthen things. I talked about the trend line from ninth grade to 12th grade. Not everybody's on the same timetable for that momentum of turning it on. And if it just got turned on too late to make them competitive to a four-year college, they can show that continued trajectory by going to a community college and, and getting that base knowledge that we want them to have. Returning students, adults who have been in a profession or a job for quite some time, uh, who want to either get a different degree, change course in their professional lives. There's a, 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 a trajectory that doesn't fit the you know ninth oh, yeah. grade to 12th grade uh, timeline. So how, how do we do that? Well, again, community colleges are a great resource there for retraining uh, for some somebody who wants to do that shift, whether it's going back and getting certified to teach or getting some technical skills to get them into the tech industry. Um, the average age at a community college is probably twice what it is at my very traditional aged student body. But what about if you if if someone wants to go to a university as an adult who might have a degree or have a professional experience? What counts in that application? Pro What's the other story for an adult that are part of the story uh, that that a university might look for? Uh, maturity is a wonderful thing. <laughs> not Thank goodness, because we're all on the in same abundance path. <laughs> in, in some 17-year-olds. But no, they, our faculty, quite frankly, enjoy teaching older students, people, veterans that have come back, and they just have a different perspective if you're talking about a history class or a political science class. And they say, wait a minute, let me tell you about that. I, I was there. Um, so I, I think that perspective is, is certainly welcome. And many of the larger universities have significant adult populations any other final words of wisdom or warning? <laughs> well, uh, in the beginning, you talked about how many, four decades of my doing this. I think my credibility actually goes up with parents because I've had two students go through this on their own. And Congratulations. I can tell you that it works out, and they're both taxpaying adults living outside my home. So it, it does work at the end of the rainbow to, to see your children off. And I think that's the thing all the parents want is they've, they've raised these people and 
from the minute they're born, we're preparing them to leave us. And the college process is pretty good practice for that. And there's a place for everybody. Optimistic words. Thank you very sure. much. Mike Sexton has been our guest today on KCBS In-Depth. He is the Vice President for Enrollment Management at Santa Clara University. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 